I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Eileen Grace Brill is a painter, writer, and sign language interpreter who grew up outside of Philadelphia and graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a BS in economics. She has written professionally for the restaurant, hotel, and commercial real estate industries. A Letter in the Wall is her first novel, though she has been a writer all her life, beginning at age four when she wrote a poem filled with spelling errors for her babysitter. Eileen's short story, Christmas Angel, appeared in the international literary magazine Beyond Words in 2021. She and her husband Eli raised their sons in her hometown of Elk Park, Pennsylvania, where they still live, along with their two adopted mutts, Athena and Gaia. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. I wanted to start with your background because it sounds like you and I come from similar backgrounds. I, too, used my writing to write content for other people. My name was rarely attached to whatever I wrote. What was it that made you say, time's up, I'm going to write fiction now? My professional life has taken so many iterations and a lot of them not connected to the one before. Um, I guess I just like to mix it up and experience life as best I can. So when I first got out of college, I was doing market research and writing reports for different industries like restaurants and hotels and such and real estate. And yeah, my name was never on these reports. I liked it because I like writing, but it wasn't creative writing. Right. You know, I started a lot of novels in my lifetime and never finished them. I would start them, I'd get a great idea, and then I didn't have an emotional connection to them. When my second son was born, a company I was working for kind of folded and I decided to, to stay home. And then when he grew up a little bit, I went back to school to become a sign language interpreter. And, you know, language is part of it too. It's, it's a language and expression and communication. What finally happened was I found the inspiration in this letter that I found and it resonated with me. I had that emotional attachment to my inspiration. There's a lot of work that went into it and research and time, but in a way, I felt like I was channeling my protagonist. So it flowed and wrote itself in a way. Especially as a debut writer, you kind of feel like, do I say that? Like that this was easy, (laughs) but you will find the more you write, you will have manuscripts that you feel like, okay, I'm I'm invested. I've gone this far down the road and I'm going to finish it because it's a good manuscript. Then you'll have some that you just fall into. And it's like, I could not write this. Like you start and you don't know what you're getting into till you're in it and go, I couldn't back out if I tried. The way you just said that, I couldn't not write this. That's the way I felt about this. And, you know, I didn't do it for the money. Uh, None of us do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I had a story to tell and it was inside of me and I had to get it out. And yeah, I couldn't not write it. You brought up this letter before we get into the book. I want to know about this letter that you found. Yeah, it's a good backstory. The backstory could be its own book. So when my husband and my two sons and I moved into this house that I live in now in 2007, an electrician was doing work on the third floor. He was putting in a new outlet in one of the bedrooms. So he reached into the wall to get the wires. And I happened to be standing in the hallway and I heard him mumbling to himself about a piece of paper, looks like trash. And of course I went in there and I said, (laughs) no, 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 don't throw it away. And he handed it to me and it was an old letter, very like kind of tattered, addressed to someone in New Jersey. I live outside of Philadelphia. I opened it up and it was written on personalized stationery, which was my address. 
and it had a woman's name at the top. So of course I was immediately interested in in this Mm -hmm. letter that evidently was never mailed and it didn't have a date on it. So I Googled her and found out that she and her family were the first owners of this house, which was built in 1920. And that kind of set me on a journey to figure out who she was and maybe how old she was when she wrote the story. Learned a lot about her family. They were prominent Quakers from Philadelphia, you know, went to all the elite schools in the area. Couldn't find a lot about her other than like sort of the the timeline of her life when she was born, you know, when she was married. But the first thing I did find, which pulled up my heartstrings, was that she was murdered in 1971. Not in my house, though. <laughs> yeah, but still sounds gross. But to say that's like something like authors see is like, oh, that's meaty. You know, I got to get yeah, into that. I got to find Absolutely. Out. Absolutely. And then when I kind of researched whatever I could about her life, it just seemed to take a lot of turns. She was married a couple of times and she was born in 1915. And to, to go through a few marriages, you know, in the 30s was kind of not that common. Kind of, you know, off and on did some research and then for a few years put it away. And then I would come back to it here and there. I wanted to write a biography, but after several years, I just realized I have the skeleton of like a really good fictionalized story here. And my imagination is going to do this a lot of justice. I can kind of fill in the whys of, you know, why did her life take the twists and turns it did? How did she end up in Oklahoma from Philadelphia? That was where the inspiration came from and kind of the trajectory of of how it became what it ended up being. Tell us about A Letter in the Wall. So A Letter on the Wall covers seven decades in the protagonist Joan's life. It opens with her um, sort of the end of her life. It's not a spoiler to say she was murdered because it's not really a murder mystery per se. And she's sort of reflecting on her life and how she got to the predicament she's in. And she's tied to a a former business partner who she realizes very quickly is kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well, shady kind of guy. But Joan is also a complex and not always likable person. You know, she makes some questionable decisions, but throughout her life, one of the themes, probably the most prominent theme is that she wants something more than she's able to find. She's a mother, she's a wife, she wants something more, something of her own, and she gets pushed back, whether it's from her father or her husband or society. And even though she's born into privilege, she cannot figure out how to get what she wants or or even what she wants. Part of the difficulty is that she's sometimes also her own worst enemy. She pushes back against people that care about her and have her best interests at heart. She can be moody. You know, you don't know if it's a nature versus nurture thing. Was she, you know, she lost her mother when she was a child and grew up kind of always longing for that mother. And you know, is it about that? Is it about, you know, her inner demons? You can view it through different lenses and Because it moves through seven decades, you see the different historical periods and what's coming into play in her own life. It is historical fiction. I like to think of it, though, as a psychological thriller or psychological historical fiction because it's very character driven. Mm -hmm. So you find this letter and obviously this letter has been haunting you and you finally fictionalized her story. How did you feel you related to this character? Joan is nothing like me. However, I have known people similar to her. And I feel like I can empathize with her struggles. And it was kind of cool to write from the perspective of someone who isn't like me. It's kind of like, it made me understand maybe what actors go through when they Mm -hmm. take on a role and they have to find, you know, the motivation, the motivation, exactly. I was searching for that word, the motivation. By the way, the original letter was so cryptic. 
I can't tell if this boy she wrote it to is a love interest, if they were just friends. And she doesn't really refer to like what their connection is, how they met. And it was driving me nuts. And I wanted to know why didn't she mail it? And there were so many whys. And I found that kind of creating a psychological profile for her helped me understand like how to write her and how to write in her voice. Like I like to think that I make rational decisions, but how would someone make decisions that I perceive as irrational, but in their mind, it made sense. So that was kind of cool to get into her mind or maybe I was channeling the real person. I don't know if you believe that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And talk to Jessica Brody. She wrote Save the Cat for Novelists. Yep, yep. Other authors recommended her book. And so spoke to her on the podcast. She has you focus on not just the character sketch, what colors their hair and what would they say to this? More so like, what is their misbelief about themselves, about others? That has kind of changed things for me. You kind of cut through a lot of the stuff that as authors, we go through and go, okay, what are we supposed to know about this character? And and sometimes you're writing 150 pages before you really know who they are. But if you start with that, like what you're talking about, you hone in and get what you need to know to be able to tell their stories. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the one thing that's in the letter that stuck out for me was she used the word failure. She said to this boy, maybe I'm a failure in your eyes. And that Mm. stuck in my head. I believe that she wrote it when she was a teenager, you know, which is typical. A lot of teenagers feel insecure and they don't Mm -hmm. have self-esteem. And especially when it comes to, you know, the opposite sex or dating. And that just stuck in my head. And I thought that's going to drive a lot of who I think she was, that Mm -hmm. failure, that word, I couldn't get it out of my head. And, And that coupled with the fact that her handwriting was so thin and so hard to read. And it was like, someone who's trying to hide, who's insecure, Mm, you know? It's really interesting. Yeah. In the story, she evolves in some ways and changes and becomes kind of a different person than who she was as a young person. And you can tell that she wanted to get far away from who she used to be. She wanted to get away from her family and she wanted to be perceived as someone completely different than what she felt she was inside. And all from this letter, I just felt like, I know who this person is. (laughs) I knew I wanted her to be. That is like every writer's dream, though, to find a letter like that. I can so see why you were like, don't touch that. You know, don't throw that away because everything is sacred to a writer. Like everything is an artifact we can use. <laughs> My publicist, Get Red PR, Anne Marine, and she also represents people like Rochelle Weinstein and uh, Lise Friedland and Kara Ruda. And I mean, she just has a. Yes a beautiful catalog of authors, myself not included on the beautiful part, but she announced this week at Red PR is starting a book club and your book was chosen as the inaugural book for it. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, that was really exciting and so flattering and I'm thrilled. I mean, yeah, I'm excited for Get Red. I think that this is a great adjunct to what they already do. And Anne-Marie's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and already people seem to be very, very interested in being becoming a part of it. Yeah, I'm excited. How do people participate in the book club? They're posting on Instagram. If you go look at Get Red PR on Instagram, I know that you can just reach out there and you can just join. There's a link, I believe. So go to Get Red PR's Instagram and find out more about participating there. Yeah. Why historical fiction? I just love anything uh, that ties us to the past. I could be walking down the street in my neighborhood and I'll see like a set of stone steps that seems to go to nowhere. And I have to go in and dig because maybe there was a house there once or it leads to a dungeon or something. (laughs) Um, 
And I just love like, you know, humans, even though our society changes and our technology changes as human beings, we, we all experience emotions and relationships. And I just love anything that ties us to the past and is like a reminder of, you know, the one way I feel like we can relate to people from the past is through being human and what we experience. A good historical fiction novel really does put you back there and like you hear what's around you and you see it and you smell it and you sense it. One historical fiction novel I read not too long ago was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, loosely based on William Shakespeare and, and his son, for whom some believe Hamlet was written. And her descriptions of London in the 1500s is so vivid. I'm like reading and I'm like, I feel like I'm there now. And a good historical fiction novel can really put you back there. And you're not even conscious of it because you're reading the story and you're in with the characters and you're not thinking, oh, I'm here now. And I'm, I have to think it's such an, you don't ascent. have to talk yourself into being back there. You are there. Exactly. I get you. So with my novel, it does go from, you know, like early 1900s through 1971. But the cool thing is, I mean, I was born in 1964, but for a lot of people reading it, they may have gone back, you know, even still be able to recall things from the 50s and 60s or 40s. And so I don't know, I love anything that can tie us to the past and take us back in a way, you know, it's not nostalgia. It's just sort of like connecting. I think. Well, it's the same reason people like to go to museums. You want to yeah. know who was here before you because that helps us form our decisions and frame our meaning for what happens ahead. Since your novel launched, what's something you've learned about the publishing process? What haven't I learned? Oh my <laughs> God, this was, oh, baptism by fire. This, okay. I have always been a reader. I love to read. I've always been a writer in one form or another. I love to write obviously never published a book before. I didn't realize, first of all, how, I hate to use the word competitive, but to get your book in front of the eyes of readers. And I think I heard a statistic, you probably know it, like every year there's about a million new books on the market and only about a third of our country, our Americans are like regular readers. (laughs) So like you do the math, like you could have written the best book in the world, the most interesting book. And you have to know Okay, I've got to I just signed with a publisher. That's all great. But now comes the hard work. I have to market it and <laughs> put myself out there. And I had no idea the work that happens after you finish writing and you sign with the publisher. I also didn't know a lot about the world of bookstagrammers and social media influencers. I, I had no idea. I wasn't really on Instagram much. I didn't know what a lively and dedicated and interesting group of people they are. I mean, and the rate at which they read books, it's like- I know. They not only read the books, but then they take these beautiful pictures with the books and then they promote your books and tell everybody about the books. It's like, oh my gosh. I mean, that's we owe yeah. them a debt of gratitude. Huge kudos to our bookstagrammers. Oh. They do oh. so much of our heavy lifting. They're great. And, and like, they're doing it for their love of reading. Like that it's plain and simple. And it's such an amazing community. Mm. I also find the writing community to be just so supportive and encouraging. And I'm in WFWA, the people I've met through that. And just, you know, I'm sure, you know, it's just like, you you feel supported. I have gotten so much great support and encouragement and suggestions from the writing community. So I wasn't really a part of that before. I've worked with some amazing, generous female coworkers. You come into this, you know, before you're ever published, you think I'm a baby writer. I don't know anybody, but I really like this book. So I'm going to reach out and tell this author I like her book. And the next thing you know, 
they're saying like, how can I help you? Or you go to a conference, they're like, oh, my friend, come over here. And it's genuine. These people are so kind, so generous. And all they ask is that you pay it forward. Yes, it's true. I didn't consistently write reviews for books I read in the past. And now I do and find that they're, you know, they're so grateful and we all want to support each other. And so, yeah, it makes me feel like I did the right thing for more reasons than just having Mm -hmm. to tell a story. Like I've opened up my world to some really cool people. I think it's just one of the coolest communities to be a part of. And occasionally you will see somebody misbehave on Twitter and let me tell you, the mama bears come out of the woodwork and they <laughs> will back up that author and be like, uh-uh, this doesn't fly. And usually that person will either fall on their sword or it's like crickets. You never hear from them again. It's like, okay, this yeah. is not the way we play. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about your writing day. I feel like these days I'm doing more like social <laughs> media posts than writing oh, yeah. or more speaking than writing. But I can tell you when I really kicked it into high gear with this manuscript, after I did my morning ablutions, and I still do the morning mm-hmm. pages that from Artist's Way, yeah. Cameron, sit down, have my coffee, do my morning pages, get that out, go take a walk, and then come back, sit down. Usually my best writing is early in the morning. I'm an early riser. I like to get it done. It's been like two or three hours just solidly working and they go by really quickly. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't like working in the evening. I don't like, I like to keep my weekends free. What I'm finding now is I'm promoting a letter on the wall. I'm not making time for creative writing. I have to force myself now to do that. I need to get back to that just to keep that muscle memory, you know, that pumping. I get a lot of work done in the morning, take a break. I'm also a sign language interpreter. So if I have a, a job that day, because it's freelance, I'll go out do that, which is great because that's using a different part of my brain. Mm -hmm. I have two big dogs that we adopted in 2020, pandemic pups, and they take (laughs) a lot of my time. (laughs) You know, that's something, those of us that have dogs, our dogs are kind of our muses, but they're also the biggest interrupters. Like you could just sit and write for hours and hours if it wasn't for those little assholes. (laughs) No, you're right. They're (laughs) such a pain in the ass sometimes. And it's like, I could be, my office is on the first floor. I don't have doors (laughs) on it. And there's two entrance ways and I'll be typing, I'll be in the zone. And one of my dogs, Athena, she's she's a little anxious if I'm not like right there with her, I'm not paying mm-hmm. attention to her and I'll be, I'll be real quiet. I'm thinking and I hear <laughs> basically telling me when you have a minute, I would really like to be pet or walked or fed. And then she will not stop until I acknowledge her. And, but you know, they give me a lot of love. I can't off them. I can't like, <laughs> well, that's good. That's so good. <laughs> You never kill off a dog in a book. I would never kill off a dog, not intentionally. What draws you to a specific subject? You know, I think that my reading choices are very eclectic. Like I don't tend to get drawn to one kind of story over another or, or one kind of writer over another. However, I do like to see strong women, strong protagonists, even if they're not likable, even if they're messy, and it doesn't have to be women. I like messiness because life can be messy. And I like when I hear that a story has kind of a twist, like you can't predict where it's going or a lot of subplots. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I find that recently I'm drawn to, I mean, I guess historical fiction is just anything from the past, right? Even if it's just from the seventies. Yesterday I was doing a podcast. We were talking about that. It's all the way up to the nineties now. Oh, really? Oh boy. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so old. Oh boy. Nineties. I mean, my my sons were born in the 90s. Yeah, so I read Damnation Spring. I interviewed Ash Davidson. You did? I love yes. her. 
I interviewed her here, the bookstore here, Wichita called me and said, Hey, would you like to be like kind of the host person and interview her for our event? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I had, awesome. I had bought the book, of course, with her coming, I was like, Oh, I've got to read this now. Yeah. So I downloaded the audiobook. That book was such a story that needed to be told. So, and yeah, I didn't really know about the logging industry in the seventies and the origins of of that in Northern California. Her mother was with her. And to this day, they will not drink out of the tap. Interesting. Wow. So it's a, wow. It's still an issue. Mm -hmm. They live in Flagstaff now, but. Okay. And I always tell people, like I tell men that I know, like it was written by a woman. Don't call it women's fiction. Not that there's anything wrong with Mm -mm. women's fiction, but I think this has a wide appeal and. Oh, yeah. She does a good job with the, the voices mm-hmm. of the male characters in the story. And there's so many of them. But yeah, so that's an example where it was in the, I guess, I guess that's really not recent history, right? <laughs> 70s. To me, it was recent history. So it was yeah. like, started in 76, I think is when yeah. the book begins. Her writing is so good. She's so good. And you feel like the, the emotions are visceral. The interplay with the family and the couples. Mm-hmm. I think she did an amazing job. So well done. Kind of like what you were talking about earlier, that you don't know you're that invested in the story, mm-hmm. but that author can put you there. And she also did a good job of showing you the other perspective where the, you know, the loggers, they were raising families, they were earning a good mm-hmm. living. And, you know, you kind of empathize with them too. Of course, everybody cares about the environment and the health of you know the mm-hmm. drinking water and everything. Also, it was a very tight-knit community and they cared yeah. about their families and their children. Yeah, I thought she did an exceptional job and I had written her a review and I also on my Instagram. So like a week after I finished the book, you know, it was hardcover and with the book jacket mm-hmm. and I had it on a bench in my foyer. And speaking of dogs, my 80 pound <laughs> mutt thought that that would make a good sandwich. And she started ripping it. Oh no. Jacket. She didn't destroy the book itself, but the jacket. And I walked in the room and it was in pieces on the carpet. And I was like, Okay, well, she didn't ruin the book. That's good. But I do have to take a picture of this for Instagram. So I'm like, this was Damnation Spring. And thank God I already read it and posted a review. And Ash commented on it. And she's telling me about her dogs too. Like my dog would have done the same thing. And then I did a reel of my dog, you know, like basically I'm saying, you know, what did you do? And Besides Damnation Spring, which we're going to go to your Instagram and we're going to find out what Gaia did to Damnation Spring. I guess you can look at it this way. Gaia has really good taste in books. She does. Good point. Yeah. So there you have it. What else have you read? Well, I read Carnegie's Maid, Marie Benedict. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved her. And only woman in the room I had read, I think last year. And one other, Marie Benedict. And I read Hamnet, of course, City of Girls, which is Elizabeth Gilbert. I always have like a nonfiction book that I'm reading simultaneously. If you recently read City of Girls, mm-hmm. I would encourage you to read Jennifer Weiner's Mrs. Everything. Oh, is that her recent? No, yeah, her recent one, which is also another extraordinary book, is The Summer Place. Mrs. Everything came out around the same time as City of Girls. And I felt like those two connected in different ways. The female experience, Mm -hmm. how we have to go about life and make decisions and choices about ourselves and and identity. Oh, I would definitely like that. What is your advice for new writers? Remember why you write and let that drive everything you do. It's not about other people or what people think or even about like what other people say success is. If you love to write and you have stories to tell, just do it because that's ultimately how you'll feel fulfilled. 
Thank you, Eileen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and uh, you're lovely and funny and fun. And I wish you were right here. We'd have a cup of coffee and go for it. Oh, well, yeah. Right. Bye. To learn more, visit EileenBrill.com. If you're enjoying the writing table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support. 